Good evening, visitor, and welcome to the very first episode of Supernatural Park's Campfire Stories. The park has set aside the last day of each month for us to share tales and poetry of horror, hauntings, and terror. This is an informal park presentation, so sit next to the fire, grab your favorite drink, and get settled in. We've got a few stories sent in from authors all over the world, so let's get started. Our first poetry submission is brought to us by Clem Flowers, who has submitted the poem Seeing All of Mason Rolled Out Beneath Me, and is their attempt at allusion to the painting Ophelia by John Everett Millet. In an endless fog, I look up at the arch I've wandered under. Moonville, it reads. Every noise is an apocalypse, so many generations in the dust. This tunnel never ends. I feel eyes upon me. I feel the icy hand upon me. Yes, there's a hood. Yes, there's a scythe. Yes, it's a skeleton. But there's no booming deep baritone like James Earl Jones broadcasting from the bottom of a well. Like Bart's radio, it's as soft as new linens or as summer rain. Says she's not going to push me, but she knows I'm so tired. I've been wandering all the wheat and apple groves and corn, trying to find the perfect flowers, same as she's been wandering, trying to take wayfaring strangers like me home. This is all a smokescreen to run from the ache. She shows me on the wall, him all happy with the wife and seven kids, and little house with a little garden full of peonies' baby's breath. They're all laughing. I drop a bunch of my flowers, down to where I feel my heart fall. She tells me it's okay, she just wanted to help me see the light. I look down the tunnel where she points. I see an old cart, made of floodwater wood, with a team of white ponies pulling it with a row of black cats, with gentle eyes watching us. I ask what her name. She smiles. She says, Anku, in a purr that puts my body into the warmth you get just before a deep sleep. Terror rips through my everything. I bolt back the way we came. Anku doesn't run after, just watches. The tunnel ends so sudden, but the wind feels amazing. I'm still running. Not even Hermes could fuck with me. I'm running along a winding whip of an effigy. I feel the snakes in my blood pushing me further. Just like Achilles, my ankle gives. I drop. The water is such a shock. All my flowers float around me. The night sky that's so clear out here away from the smog, traffic, headlights, skyline chili signs. I remember mom telling me that they almost named me Ophelia. I share with the sky Anku's smile. This poem, in my humble opinion, is effective in its imagery, especially if you've seen the painting of Ophelia. I can see the image of both the subjects and Ophelia's face laying in the water, looking up in the sky with flowers floating around them. Well done, Clem. Clem Flowers, they, them pronouns, is a poet, soft-spoken southern transplant, low-rent asset, pizza man lover, gorgeous monstrosity, and dramatic tenor living in the home of truth, Utah, with their awesome wife and sweet kitty. They are a hella queer and non-binary poetry editor at Blue River Review, with publication credits including Only Magazine, Blue River Review, The Madrigal, Pink Plastic House Journal, Bullshit Lit, Corporeal, Holy Flea, Anti-Heroin Chick, and Warning Lines Magazine. Author of chapbooks Stoked and Thrashing from Alien Buddha Press, 
Eating Rain, Matchstick Graveyard from Alien Buddha Press, and Two Out of Three Falls from Bullshit Lit, you can find them on Twitter at Clem underscore Flowers. Our next two stories come from Luke Cannon. The first flash fiction I will be reading is titled Mordot. Devastation. One word to sum up a village's fate. By the time I reached it, a long drive followed by a three-day hike over rocky hillside, no one remained alive. And so, this story is not my own, only that which I could surmise from written accounts found within the confines of this village. If you are squeamish, please stop reading now. The first account of the Mordaunts, as the locals appear to have named it, draws from a journal kept by the village doctor. Three men in the village had fallen ill, having recently returned from a hunting trip, and the doctor was quite concerned. The village had previously lost many to diseases like Ebola and bird flu, so his concern seemed perfectly valid. He had the three men separated and quarantined in a house adjoining his own. Within 24 hours, he notes that the men's skin began to bubble and slough off. This was accompanied by an increase in aggression in the patients as they began lashing out at anyone that ventured close and had to be restrained. The doctor's account suggests that had quarantine held, the novel illness would likely have stopped there. However, the quarantine did not hold. On the third day of infection, the quiet of two to three hundred slumbering locals was broken by loud shrieks. Anyone who ventured to find the source of the commotion was greeted by a terrible sight. A woman, covered in gouging scratches, stumbled among the main street of the village, followed in short distance by what appeared to be a skinless man. The skinless man, one of those three that were quarantined, had somehow escaped his bounds and with a singular purpose pursued this young woman. Another journal, that of a schoolgirl, notes that onlookers tried to intercede despite their fear. They overwhelmed the man with some great effort, the schoolgirl noting that the skinless man appeared to possess a great strength not befitting of his frame. She writes, Flecks of red blood spewed from his mouth like a rabid dog that foams. He looked deranged. Many tried to hold him down, but he held them back, scratching them with his nails while their hands slipped from his slippery body. The occurrences of that night mark a point of no return for the small village. The doctor writes in his journal that he has named this disease the Mordance after an old tale the villagers sometimes told that spoke of misfortune. He further writes, I do not know how this disease is transmitted, although by the grace of my good health, I am sure it is not airborne. Could it have spread to others last night? The journal of another villager, a baker, lends answer to the doctor's question. She speaks of heading outside during the night of the quarantine escape to source the noise and joining the group attempting to constrain the ill man. He was possessed. His eyes red and his skin, he had no skin. I tried to hold his arm, but he cut my face with one of his sharp nails, so I hit him. He didn't even respond like he hadn't felt it. Later, she writes of feeling woozy while she baked bread, but neglects to visit the doctor for fear of losing money. Her last entry, a few hours later, talks of feeling hot and irritable before the journal trails off. The next clear record of the Bordance is the message my field hospital received from the village elder, a man named Joro. He pleads with us to send help quickly as a previously unknown illness sweeps their village. Among those who have become Mordant, he lists the three quarantine men, 
the baker, and several others. A colleague and I, despite reserving some skepticism at the peculiar symptoms listed, were sent almost immediately given the dire nature of the claims, although we arrived too late. The doctor's notes pick up about two days later after a short absence from writing. He states that he is now holed up with many of the other villagers in the village church. The Mordant, as he calls them, surrounds the building. He believes them to possess inflated strength and to infect by scratching. Through scratching, he writes, they are able to introduce bodily fluids abundant on their skinless flesh into fresh wounds. One scratch may be all it takes. He notes that many of the villagers did not make it to the church and are likely holed up in their homes or already changed. He also notes that the Mordant do not seem to suffer from sepsis as an uninfected person with such expansive open wounds likely would, possibly due to heightened resistance to foreign pathogens. They've broken several windows so we can no longer defend them all. I hear so many of them now, clawing at the walls, getting louder. Please God, send us aid. The doctor's final words. When my colleague and I located the church, it was a smoldering pile of wood and broken glass. We located numerous bodies, but none of them were missing skin. I hope this record serves as a warning to nearby villages and towns. Beware the Mordaunt. Heed this warning and pray. The next short story is titled Summoning Pains. To Summon a Demon Step 1. Draw a pentacle, a five-sided star surrounded by a circle. Chalk or permanent marker works best, although you may also choose to use blood. Step 2. Close to the first pentacle, create a smaller pentacle with a candle at each point of the star. This is your safe haven. Nothing can harm you as long as you stay inside this circle. Step 3. Light the candles, Stand inside the smaller pentacle and chant the words of evocation. Step 4. Speak the words of banishment to release the summoned demon back to its realm. Do not step out of your pentacle before banishment is complete or let the candles blow out. If this happens, you shall suffer a dire fate far beyond your most wicked nightmares. Take care, for many a soul has rued a summoning gone awry. These were the instructions I found online. I was browsing occult forums when I first came across them, and instantly I knew I had to try it for myself. Some find it easy to believe in what they cannot see, but not me. I needed proof. I waited until my parents had gone away for the weekend to conduct this research into the unknown, afraid they would try to stop me if they knew. My parents were religious, the sort that go to Mass every weekend and drag their kids along. Perhaps this is why I wasn't religious at all. I wanted to find my own answers, not have them forced upon me. Steps one and two were easy. My room had wooden flooring that I could easily draw on. I decided to use charcoal in this instance because I wanted something I could easily wash off later. Plus, the pentacles looked really badass when I finished. Candles lit, I spoke the words of evocation, which I had printed out alongside the four steps and the words of banishment. Nothing happened. I repeated them, yet again, nothing. I was just about to give up and step out of my pentacle when I heard its voice. So rude. To call and then to leave so soon. It was barely a whisper, but every syllable was as clear as day. I started, turning myself frantically to find the source of the voice. Then I saw it, barely an outline in the space above the larger pentacle, 
a grotesque being I cannot fully describe. It was ethereal and fickle, shifting before me from one sinister shape to the next, always on the borderline of visibility. Fear struck me. In no way did I expect this to work, and now I was left with the consequence of my actions, face to face with something I couldn't explain. What are you? I asked it. In reply, it boomed deeply in a language I didn't know and then laughed. It actually laughed. There was an underlying surrealness to the action. I, eh, I command you to tell me, I issued. It continued to laugh. You cannot command me, it stated. You are so, so weak and I am indomitable. I am the rage you feel when your petty life lacks meaning. I am the fear in the hearts of all men. I am sickness, and I am death. You don't scare me. Just then, a wind blew through the room, and within one small moment, I knew I had made a fatal error. The candles flickered, and as I moved to shield them from going out, I placed the sheets I held in harm's way. Flame caught and ignited from the center of the sheets, and before I could act, they were marred beyond comprehension. When the wind stopped, I stared at the relics of paper I now held, as desolation hit my very soul. The words of banishment, they were gone. I write this as I sit in the circle, unable to move, in the hopes that it may serve as a warning to others who may seek to follow my path. My parents won't be back in time to save me now. All I have are this charcoal and paper and the taunts of an unrelenting fiend. It laughs at me now constantly. I'm getting so tired and the candles are growing so low. Well, visitor, those two stories were indeed frightening. Well done to Luke. I believe the park is pleased as well. Can you hear the wind howl through the air? Not only is it setting the mood... It's the park's way of showing how happy it is. Remember, the park loves stories and lives off of them. I believe this night is a delightful bounty for it. Luke Hannon is an aspiring author and poet from County Meath, Ireland. In 2022, he received first place in the Macra Nafirm Creative Writing Competition Poetry section with his poem, Alterman. He has previously been published in the Irish Farmer's Journal, Agerland, Wingless Dreamer, Tiny Seed Literary Journal, Suburban Witchcraft Magazine, and Black Poppy Review. He is soon to be published in Nat One Publishing's Elderly Ones and Black Ink on a Black Void Anthologies, Spirit Season Magazine, and Wingless Dreamer's Sea or Seashore Anthology. He enjoys genre fiction and writing about the themes of mental health, nature, love, and loss. You can find him on Twitter at LukeHannonPoet. Well, visitor, this concludes this month's edition of Campfire Stories. Thank you so much for coming, and thank you so much for those who have contributed. The park thanks you as well. We look forward to sharing more spooky tales next month. If you'd like to contribute to the park's well-being, please send in your own horror poetry, flash fiction, or short story to thesupernaturalpark at gmail.com. Please stick around the campfire here for as long as you'd like. There's no rush back, and the trail of sea glass will be here for you as long as you need it to be. Oh, but when you do go back, please be careful. You can never tell what's lurking around here at night. And as always, please remember, do not feed the wildlife. <laughs>